from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. This is a Target USA special report. The life of former President George H.W. Bush. I want a kinder and gentler nation. George H.W. Bush was a remarkable man. And on this episode of Target USA, we take a look at some key moments from his life and his passing. From the cities to the suburbs to the loneliest town on the quietest street, to take our message of hope and growth for every American, to every American, I will keep America moving forward, always forward, for a better America, for an endless, enduring dream and a thousand points of light. This is my mission, and I will complete it. A special look at the life of former President George H.W. Bush, coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. In today's battle space, situations change rapidly. That's why Northrop Grumman's innovative C-4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. This is a Target USA special report. The life of former President George H.W. Bush. I'm J.J. Green. George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st president of the U.S., passed away on November 30th. 2018 at the age of 94. He lived a big life. Naval war hero, congressman, UN ambassador, ambassador to China, director of the CIA, vice president, global statesman, and a very kind person. He accomplished a lot. His friends and family say he was smart, fearless, funny, but perhaps his greatest attribute was his compassion for others. His was a life that was almost cut short before any of these accomplishments occurred. We begin with a look back at his naval career. Serving on a ship, flying into combat, and striking from beneath the waves, George Bush's naval career shaped his life and made him a better president. December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor is attacked without warning, and upon hearing the news, George Bush, a student at the time, decides to join the Navy. One year later, he begins flight training and is then assigned to the USS San Jacinto, making him the youngest naval aviator at the time. They depart from New Jersey and after some shakedown and a few anti-submarine patrols, Bush finds himself in danger for the first time at the Battle of the Philippine Sea. Tied to the deck and ready for launch, the ship comes under fire. Unable to launch, 
after the attack is over, Bush and his crew members brace for impact, hoping that a stray bullet doesn't strike one of the bombs loaded on the plane. Narrowly avoiding disaster, they immediately launch. Shortly after takeoff, there is a drop in oil pressure caused by the attack, and they are forced to make a water landing. USS San Jacinto continues to fight in Rota, Guam, and Padaloo. Bush and another pilot receive credit for sinking a small cargo ship, and on August 1st, he is promoted to the rank of Lieutenant Junior Grade. They then head for the Bonin Islands, and on the morning of September 2nd, Bush starts his attack run that would earn him the Distinguished Flying Cross. He quickly encounters heavy anti-aircraft fire and his plane sustains a hit, causing the engine to catch fire. Continuing the attack, he drops four bombs which causes damaging hits. Unable to see and afraid the plane might explode, he flies a few miles away and makes a quick right turn giving him and his crew a chance to bail out, but only his chute opens. He lands in the Pacific, saying, I didn't know what was going to happen for a couple of hours, and then out of the sea came a periscope and then a submarine. Thank God, it turned out to be ours. Over the next 30 days, he experiences the Navy from the tight quarters of the silent service. Serving as a lookout, he shares the joys of rescuing other aviators and the helplessness of being depth charged. After Bush is dropped off in Hawaii, he finds his way back to his unit and rejoins the fight. By December of 1944, his unit is recalled and Bush heads to Norfolk. In his career, Bush flies 58 combat missions, receives the Distinguished Flying Cross and three Air Medals. He is credited with 126 carrier landings and 1,228 flight hours. The day Navy Lieutenant Junior Grade George H.W. Bush was shot down was memorable, and so was his rescue. In fact, Commander Paul Cook, retired Navy, tells the story of how he was rescued. Bush was shot down. Uh, he got... And, it, and uh, he was close to the Japanese. Uh, there was an island, I forgot the name of the island, but uh, he got shot down and he landed and he, he did, didn't get his crew out of the, the torpedo plane that he was flying. Uh, and I saw that the Japanese were trying to get to him and uh, so I just, he, he was in his, in his uh, lifeboat. There's no way I could communicate with him because he was in his life raft. And I went like this over the submarine. We, we had our submarine offshore and I knew that the submarine was there. <coughs> so I uh, did this. And, and then came back around and so I, I did this to get his attention to follow me and when, the, when I got to the end I'd go up like this and go back and he finally got the matches that's why I, I was trying to get him so he could get on a U.S. submarine and he did he finally got, got to the submarine and one of our uh, men from the uh, Enterprise was uh, 
also in the water. And, and so it was George Bush and uh, trying to think of the, the man's name that was in our squadron. <laughs> uh, but anyway, they both got the message and both got on the submarine. <laughs> but they, they would have been captured if I had uh, found the submarine and did my signal and Bush survived his ordeal in the Pacific and went on to live a long life, most of which was dedicated to public service. One of his first high-profile positions was director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Here's a clip from a Meet the Press episode from the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library that opens a window into a very troubled time for the nation and the CIA. The episode is from February 22nd. 1976. Our guest today on Meet the Press is George Bush, the new director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Meet the Press, the world's oldest network television program, is a public affairs presentation of NBC News. This is Bill Monroe inviting you to Meet the Press with George Bush, director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Mr. Bush has been in his new job at the CIA for three weeks. He was formerly U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Ambassador to China, and before that, Chairman of the Republican National Committee. He's a former Texas Congressman and unsuccessful candidate for the Senate from that state. We'll have the first questions now from Ford Rowan of NBC News. Mr. Bush, the President's new program for the Intelligence Agency seeks to prevent leaks and protect secrets by making it a crime for government employees to leak information about intelligence sources and methods. While the legislation is not, would not impose criminal penalties on the news media, a reporter who received leaked information would be an eyewitness to a crime and could be forced to reveal his sources before a grand jury or go to jail. Now, at issue, of course, is whether this new procedure could result in future cover-ups of abuses and crimes by the CIA. Would you be willing to endorse legislation, which has been endorsed by your predecessor, William Colby, which would permit reporters to claim a privilege and not reveal their sources to government investigators? I don't think there's anything in the new legislation that would change uh, the liability or the potential liability of a newsman. And uh, I'm not a lawyer. My, I wish I were in this job. My predecessor was a very able lawyer. Uh, and so I would have to consult our own attorneys about that. But I think the point I'd like to make, Mr. Rowan, is that there's no uh, uh, additional exposure uh, for news people because of this, this uh, proposed legislation or because of the, the reg regulations that I am uh, instructed to promulgate under the order. Mr. Bush, the Attorney General has said that uh, he would be willing to call reporters before grand juries and question them about their sources. And the change, of course, is now they would be asked about a crime that they were an eyewitness to. Do you think that this could lead to future cover-ups, like, for example, the, the story that appeared 14 months ago in the New York Times uh, that led to the investigation of domestic spying? Would anyone in the government have been willing to leak that information if they thought that a grand jury could find out their identity? Well, the... Uh the, uh, there's no change in, I think you're referring to the Hirsch story under this, uh, the thing that is involved is sources and methods, and that will continue to be involved, and, but that is not what, uh, what was happening under the Hirsch story. So I see no change in that happening under the legislation that is proposed by the President. But you see, we want to, I think, we want to 
be darn sure the sins of the past are eliminated, but equally sure that this intelligence system can operate uh, with secrecy uh, in the future. That's our objective, fairness, and I think we can do it. Well, Mr. Bush, uh, certainly Operation Chaos, which involves spying on American citizens, was a method. And certainly NSA surveillance of electronic communications of American okay. citizens is a method. And certainly Americans are worried that their government is spying on them. Now, if And I think the main thing to remember, Mr. Rowan, as you study that order, is that those things uh, are eliminated under, under this new proposal. Those things are specifically, by reference, eliminated. George H.W. Bush went on to become vice president, and during a conversation in 1985 with Leslie Stahl of CBS News, again, some footage we got from the George H.W. Bush library, he talked about his true intentions. He opened a window into his thinking about the U.S. and some of its issues. Let me ask you a question President Reagan was asked earlier this week and that is about the theme of the inauguration, We the People. Mm -hmm. Some people feel that the theme is really We the White People, and that blacks in this country continue to be left out of the recovery and the resurgence that you're talking about. Well, I hope that's not what the inauguration conv conveys, because the answer to those whoever have been left behind is to have a continued recovery, have things moving. So there's nothing intended in that, and though we did not do well in the black community in terms of vote, to put it mildly, uh, I know how I feel, and that is the day we were inaugurated to get in there and start trying with sensitivity to uh, do whatever is necessary to ameliorate conditions for people. But it's not to go back to the answers that have failed in the past. So we're not trying to convey exclusivity. We're trying to convey an inclusive feeling that everybody's involved. The president said that he thought some of the black leaders were deliberately misrepresenting your positions in order to keep them as Democrats and, and anti-Republican. Uh, some of the black leaders, when you say leaders in terms of some of the organizations, have an old agenda and have old answers to solving very difficult problems. And we are not going to go down that road. And there are plenty of new black leaders who may not be the head of this organization or that, who believe that the opportunity economy and an opportunity society is a far better answer than a categorical program of some sort. Let me ask you about what your role is okay. going to be in the next four years. Uh, for the first term, uh, you really weren't very visible. You didn't talk to reporters very much. We really didn't know exactly what your functions were. Are you going to be uh, more public? And no. what are you going to do? I'm going to be about the same. I was fairly visible. I traveled extensively. Got a lot of coverage around the country when a vice president travels, but uh, I can't I can't think of a difference as how this role is going to be any difference. I want to support the president, support our policies. I have a hand in formulating them and shaping them, and uh, if that means foregoing a, a chance to hey mom I'm on TV, uh, <laughs> okay I'll forego it from time to time. You were lampooned to say the least during the campaign for being so supportive, yeah. constantly loyal. If you do decide to run for president in 1988, won't, won't that have hurt your image no. if you continue along always being so supportive and never standing out, making you know, a separate my, position? What would hurt my image if I tried to say, these are the good things, but I secretly told the president that he shouldn't do this or that, trying to, because somewhere along you, you, you trip over something called character, and I couldn't do that to the president. And I know there's a fascination in some 
uh, I'd say mostly the liberal quarters. Well, this is a crazy supporting the president like this, but I don't agree with that. I think I think loyalty is, uh, as I said a while back, I've never considered it a character flaw. This is a Target USA special report. The life of former President George H.W. Bush. And after a brief break, we'll return with a son and former president eulogizing his father, also a former president. Well, Dad, we're going to remember you for exactly that and much more. And we're going to miss you. Your decency, sincerity, and kind soul will stay with us forever. So through our tears, let us know the blessings of knowing and loving you, a great and noble man, the best father a son or daughter could have. And we'll have special reflections about George W. Bush when we continue on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman's innovative C-4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability, enabling faster, more assured decisions. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. This is a Target USA special report. The life of former President George H.W. Bush. I'm J.J. Green. We've looked at the life of George H.W. Bush up until perhaps the crowning jewel of his political career when he became president. We pick up our story on January 20th, 1989, one of the coldest days I can remember working as a journalist. On this day, covering the inauguration of the 41st president of the United States. The temperature on Pennsylvania Avenue was in the single digits, frigid, but his message was one of warmth. And we need a new engagement too between the executive and the Congress. The challenges before us will be thrashed out with the White, with the House and the Senate. And we must bring the federal budget into balance. And we must ensure that America stands before the world united, strong, at peace and fiscally sound. But of course things may be difficult. We need compromise, we've had dissension. We need harmony. We've had a chorus of discordant voices. For Congress too has changed in our time. There's grown a certain divisiveness. We've seen the hard looks and heard the statements in which not each other's ideas are challenged, but each other's motives. And our great parties have too often been far apart and untrusting of each other. It's been this way since Vietnam. That war cleaves us still. But friends, that war began in earnest a quarter of a century ago. And surely the statute of limitations has been reached. This is a fact. The final lesson of Vietnam is that no great nation can long afford to be sundered by a memory. A new breeze is blowing, and the old bipartisanship must be made new again.
To my friends, and yes, I do mean friends, in the loyal opposition, and yes, I mean loyal, I put out my hand. I'm putting out my hand to you, Mr. Speaker. I'm putting out my hand to you, Mr. Majority Leader. For this is the thing. This is the age of the offered hand, and we can't turn back clocks, and I don't want to. But when our fathers were young, Mr. Speaker, our differences ended at the water's edge, and we don't wish to turn back time. But when our mothers were young, Mr. Majority Leader, the Congress and the executive were capable of working together to produce a budget on which this nation could live. Let us negotiate soon and hard, but in the end, let us produce. The American people await action. They didn't send us here to bicker. They ask us to rise above the merely partisan. Bush didn't win a second term as president, but that didn't stop him from being who he was. And that was a man with friends, loyal friends. One of those people was former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, who spoke at his funeral. And he understood and made it clear to the audience just how big a factor George H.W. Bush was on the world stage, especially at the end of the Cold War. This was, in my judgment, the most epical event, political event, of the 20th century. An ominous situation that could have become extremely menacing to world security was instead deftly challenged by the leadership of President Bush into the broad and powerful currents of freedom, providing the Russian people with the opportunity to build an embryonic democracy in a country that had been ruled by czars and tyrants for over a thousand years. And then, as the Berlin Wall collapsed soon thereafter, and calls for freedom cascaded across Central and Eastern Europe, leaving dictators and dogma in the trash can of history, no challenge, no challenge, assumed greater importance for Western solidarity than the unification of Germany within an unswerving NATO. But old fears in Western Europe and unrelenting hostility by the military establishment in the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact rendered this initiative among the most complex and sensitive ever undertaken. One serious misstep and this entire process could have been compromised, perhaps irretrievably. There's obviously no more knowledgeable or competent judge what really happened at this most vital juncture of the 20th century than Chancellor Helmut Kohl of, of Germany. In a speech to a parliamentary commission of the Bundestag, Chancellor Kohl said categorically that this historic initiative of German reunification could never, ever have succeeded without the brilliant leadership of President Bush. And his friend, former Wyoming Senator Alan Simpson, benefited from his kindness as well and knew him to be a true friend. The most decent and honorable person I ever met was my friend George Bush, one of nature's noble men. His epitaph, perhaps just a single letter, the letter L for loyalty, 
It coursed through his blood. Loyalty to his country. Loyalty to his family. Loyalty to his friends. Loyalty to the institutions of government and always, always, always a friend to his friends. None of us were ready for this day. We mourn his loss from our own lives and what he was to each of us. That is so personal, so intimate, so down inside. It would have been so much easier to celebrate his life with him here, but he is gone, irrevocably gone. And now we have loosed our grip upon him, but we shall always retain his memory in our hearts. God has come now to take him back. We all knew on one unknown day he would return to his God. Now we give him up. We commend him to your loving hands. Thank you for him. God rest his soul. Looking back on the life of this former president has been a lesson in civics, a tutorial on how to conduct a political career, an open manual on marriage, a seminar on friendship, but also one of the rarest of rare occurrences in the entire history of the United States, a step-by-step -step guide on how a former president relates to his children, which happens to include a man that would later be president as well. George W. Bush, the 43rd president, delivered 12 minutes of moving spoken word eloquence as he eulogized his father and how he did it. Distinguished guests, including our presidents and first ladies, government officials, foreign dignitaries, and friends. Jeb, Neil, Marvin, Darrow, and I, and our families, thank you all for being here. I once heard it said of man that the idea is to die young as late as possible. At age 85, a favorite pastime of George H.W. Bush was firing up his boat, the Fidelity, and opening up the three 300-horsepower engines to fly, joyfully fly, across the Atlantic with the Secret Service boats straining to keep up. At age 90, George H.W. Bush parachuted out of an aircraft and landed on the grounds of St. Anne's by the Sea in Kennebunkport, Maine, the church where his mom was married and where he worshiped often. Mother liked to say he chose the location just in case the chute didn't open. <laughs> in his 90s, he took great delight when his closest pal, James A. Baker, smuggled a bottle of Grey Goose vodka into his hospital room. Apparently it paired well with the steak Baker had delivered from Morton's. <laughs> to his very last days, Dad's life was instructive. As he aged, he taught us how to grow with dignity, humor, and kindness. And when the good Lord finally called, how to meet him with courage and with the joy of the promise of what lies ahead. One reason Dad knew how to die young is that he almost did it, twice. 
When he was a teenager, a staph infection nearly took his life. A few years later, he was alone in the Pacific on a life raft, praying that his rescuers would find him before the enemy did. God answered those prayers. It turned out he had other plans for George H.W. Bush. For Dad's part, I think those brushes with death made him cherish the gift of life, and he vowed to live every day to the fullest. Dad was always busy, a man in constant motion, but never too busy to share his love of life with those around him. He taught us to love the outdoors. He loved watching dogs flush a covey. He loved landing the elusive striper. And once confined to a wheelchair, he seemed happiest sitting in his favorite perch on the back porch at Walker's Point, contemplating the majesty of the Atlantic. The horizons he saw were bright and hopeful. He was a genuinely optimistic man. And that optimism guided his children and made each of us believe that anything was possible. He continually broadened his horizons with daring decisions. He was a patriot. After high school, he put college on hold and became a Navy fighter pilot as World War II broke out. Like many of his generation, he never talked about his service until his time as a public figure forced his hand. We learned of the attack on Chichijima, the mission completed, the shootdown. We learned of the death of his crewmates, whom he thought about throughout his entire life. And we learned of the rescue. And then another audacious decision. He moved his young family from the comforts of the East Coast to Odessa, Texas. He and mom adjusted to their arid surroundings quickly. He was a tolerant man. After all, he was kind and neighborly to the women with whom he, mom, and I shared a bathroom in our small duplex. Even after he learned their profession, ladies of the night. <laughs> Dad could relate to people from all walks of life. He was an empathetic man. He valued character over pedigree. And he was no cynic. He looked for the good in each person, and he usually found it. Dad taught us that public service is noble and necessary, that one can serve with integrity and hold true to the important values like faith and family. He strongly believed that it was important to give back to the community and country in which one lived. He recognized that serving others enriched the giver's soul. To us, his was the brightest of a thousand points of light. In victory, he shared credit. When he lost, he shouldered the blame. He accepted that failure is a part of living a full life, but taught us never to be defined by failure. He showed us how setbacks can strengthen. None of his disappointments could compare with one of life's greatest tragedies, the loss of a young child. Jeb and I were too young to remember the pain and agony he and mom felt when our three-year-old sister died. We only learned later that dad, a man of quiet faith, prayed for her daily. 
He was sustained by the love of the Almighty and the real and enduring love of her mom. Dad always believed that one day he would hug his precious Robin again. He loved to laugh, especially at himself. He could tease and needle, but never out of malice. He placed great value on a good joke. That's why he chose Simpson to speak. <laughs> On email, he had a circle of friends with whom he shared or received the latest jokes. His grading system for the quality of the joke was classic George Bush. The rare sevens and eights were considered huge winners, most of them off color. George Bush knew how to be a true and loyal friend. He nurtured and honored many, his many friendships with a generous and giving soul. There exist thousands of handwritten notes encouraging or sympathizing or thanking his friends and acquaintances. He had an enormous capacity to give of himself. Many a person would tell you that dad became a mentor and a father figure in their life. He listened and he consoled. He was their friend. I think of Don Rhodes, Taylor Blanton, Jim Nance, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and perhaps the unlikeliest of all, the man who defeated him, Bill Clinton. My siblings and I refer to the guys in this group as brothers from other mothers. <laughs> he taught us that a day was not meant to be wasted. He played golf at a legendary pace. I always wonder why he insisted on speed golf. He was a good golfer. Well, here's my conclusion. He played fast so that he could move on to the next event, to enjoy the rest of the day, to expend his enormous energy, to live it all. He was born with just two settings, full throttle, then sleep. <laughs> he taught us what it means to be a wonderful father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. He was firm in his principles and supportive as we began to seek our own ways. He encouraged and comforted, but never steered. We tested his patience. I know I did. <laughs> but he always responded with the great gift of unconditional love. Last Friday, when I was told he had minutes to live, I called him. The guy answered the phone said he, I think he can hear you, but he hadn't said anything for most of the day. I said, Dad, I love you and you've been a wonderful father. And the last words he would ever say on earth were, I love you too. To us, he was close to perfect, but not totally perfect. His short game was lousy. <laughs> He wasn't exactly Fred Astaire on the dance floor. <laughs> the man couldn't stomach vegetables, especially broccoli. <laughs> and by the way, he passed these genetic defects along to us. <laughs> Finally, every day of his 73 years of marriage, Dad taught us all what it means to be a great husband. He married a sweetheart. He adored her. He laughed and cried with her. He was dedicated to her totally.
In his old age, Dad enjoyed watching police show reruns. The volume on high. <laughs> All the while holding Mom's hand. After Mom died, Dad was strong, but all he really wanted to do was hold Mom's hand again. Of course, Dad taught me another special lesson. He showed me what it means to be a president who serves with integrity, leads with courage, and acts with love in his heart for the citizens of our country. When the history books are written, they will say that George H.W. Bush was a great president of the United States, a diplomat of unmatched skill, a commander-in-chief of formidable accomplishment, and a gentleman who executed the duties of his office with dignity and honor. In his inaugural address, the 41st President of the United States said this, we cannot hope only to leave our children a bigger car, a bigger bank account. We must hope to give them a sense of what it means to be a loyal friend, a loving parent, a citizen who leaves his home, his neighborhood, and town better than he found it. What do we want the men and women who work with us to say when we are no longer there? That we were more driven to succeed than anyone around us? Or that we stopped to ask if a sick child had gotten better and stayed a moment there to trade a word of friendship? Well, Dad, we're going to remember you for exactly that and much more. And we're going to miss you. Your decency, sincerity, and kind soul will stay with us forever. So through our tears, let us know the blessings of knowing and loving you, a great and noble man, the best father a son or daughter could have. And in our grief, let us smile knowing that Dad is hugging Robin and holding Mom's hand again. Whether you were there in person, listening on the radio, or watching on television, it was clear the emotion in that place, at that time, in those people, was real. And we're lucky to have had uh, someone there who actually witnessed all of this, an old friend of mine and current colleague here at WTOP Radio in Washington, Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell joins us to talk about what he saw. The phrase that a lot of people hear about Washington is only in Washington, right? And you usually hear that in terms of politics, like, yeah, yeah. oh, that's not so great. What was happening there was only in Washington in the best sense of what Washington, D.C. is. When you see everything that happened close up, all the military precision, the honor guard, all of the planning that goes into effect for what is really a quintessentially Washington event. It's something to behold. I was standing there right in front of history, basically. Mm-hmm. Yards front, away. Front seat. Right there. You see the motorcade slowly come around, the rumble of the motorcycles, the cars coming through, and everybody is kind of on their tiptoes looking at what is about to unfold. And even though you know what's going to happen, even though you know you saw that with President Ford or you saw that with President Reagan or even more recently with Senator John McCain, Mm -hmm. there is something about it that draws you in. You cannot actually 
believe what you're seeing. And that is, of course, the flag-draped casket, the hearse. And then to see the family, the Bush family, Mm -hmm. right there getting out of their vehicles and getting ready to go into the cathedral, all surrounded, of course, by military personnel who have been trained to do this and carry this out absolutely to a T. It's absolutely incredible. And this is by design. And what you've talked about, this precision, this synchronicity, the coordination is is unmatched. And for for a president, uh, the funeral of a former president. But you haven't even gotten to the part yet where, aside from the fact that his son is a former president, there were other former presidents and a current president there as well. Right. So, of course, you have the security is absolutely at the top notch because you're going to have all of the living presidents there. Mm -hmm. You had Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and, of course, George W. Bush, and then Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a little bit more interesting when you have Donald Trump there because he's had a few moments with not only the Bush family, Mm-hmm. but Barack Obama and the Clintons. And it appears that President Trump came in fairly late. Uh, whether that's by design or that's the way it happened, there wasn't going to be a lot of warmth, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, in that pew as they all sat next together. And that's kind of an interesting dynamic because often what happens is the former presidents, it's a club, right? Yeah. So they are talking about their old experiences. So in that sense, this was a very different type of state funeral, even though it had all the same pageantry, all of the things that you would normally expect in something like this. There was a little bit different here, but I will say this. One thing that is the same is it's the one rare moment where you have Democrats and Republicans all coming together Everything is put aside, at least for a day. Mm -hmm. Maybe it picks up after a few days later, but at least for a day, you have a comedy of both Republicans and Democrats coming together. Give us a sense of what you saw from the the everyday person. I mean, first of all, you see it in terms of literally the number of people lining up along the street, right? And that that was pretty remarkable, right? Right. So you have all of these people lining up early in the morning on a cold day, along Wisconsin Avenue during what's normally work hours. Obviously today, because it's a day of mourning, it's a little bit different. But these people decided to come because they felt it was important that they actually witness history and mark respect for somebody who gave so much, right? You had George H.W. Bush. We know the story. The arc of his life is incredible Mm -hmm. from Navy shot down eventually working through public service, CIA, vice president, ultimately the president of the United States. And what I found really interesting is even in the days before the state funeral, when I spoke with people who waited to see him lying in state, it actually made you kind of come away feeling pretty good about the country because Mm -hmm. we as reporters, we go up to people very randomly. Uh, Some of them look at you a little skeptically or they don't want to talk or whatever it might be. The people I talked to were remarkably well-spoken. They said, I just want to come and pay homage to this man who gave so much to this country. One man that I spoke to, 
His father was a World War II veteran. He had his submarine hat marking his father's career. And he said, basically, I came down here to share a moment with my father who died a few months ago, and I wanted to do that for him. has been public service, Mm -hmm. and he never, ever stopped doing that. Mitchell Miller, reporter extraordinaire here at WTOP, and a longtime journalist and somebody who's been a student of history and of the world for a long time. Thank you for sharing your insights today. Thank you, JJ. And finally, we could not complete this program without the part of the story that is perhaps as important as any other part, and that is the 38 years that the U.S. Secret Service provided protection and comfort for George W. Bush in life, and they continue doing it even after he's passed. Orchestrating the state funeral of a former president is a very complex operation. It's a seven to 10 day event and consists of three stages. Stage one includes ceremonies within the state in which the president, former president or president-elect was in residence. Stage two includes ceremonies within Washington, D.C. And stage three includes ceremonies in the state in which the authorized individual is chosen to be interred. Armed forces, honor guards, gun salutes are all a part of a tightly synchronized series of events. State funerals um, is a process that the Secret Service participates in throughout the year. And long-term planning in terms of how we prepare for the demise of any president, former president. So in this case, the planning for a state funeral has been ongoing with our partners in the region, with Joint Force Headquarters uh, in the Military District of Washington, our local partners with Metropolitan Police Department. It's a constant planning process to make sure that we're prepared uh, for the eventual uh, demise of, of a former president. Matthew Quinn, special agent in charge in the Office of Protective Operations at Secret Service. The relationship between a former president and the Secret Service is always special, and this one was no different. You know, J.J., I can say that when uh, you spend 38 years of your life as a protected member, a protected person by the Secret Service, there are certainly... Um, a level of mutual respect that is developed and, and, and relationships, to be quite frank, over a period of time. Um, and the, the former President Bush, without a doubt, and uh, former First Lady Bush were gracious, um, gracious former presidents and First Lady. The ceremonies involve armed forces honor guards, elite military bands, the service academies, National Guard and U.S. Armed Forces Reserve Units. It's a multi-day event with ceremonies occurring outside the National Capital Region as well that may include Washington-based honor guards and local service units for logistical military band and or salute gun support, an arrival ceremony, a lying in state ceremony, and a departure ceremony are all part of the process. The same agents who were responsible for the protection of George H.W. Bush, the 41st president in life, were still on duty even after his death. Continuing to work and stand post there at the Capitol. It's a sign of dedication to the former president and a sense of duty even after he's passed on. 
their their job doesn't change. You may have noticed that many of the the shift agents, as we call them, were the pallbearers. And that same set of Secret Service agents will be with him until he's returned to Texas, where he's finally laid to rest. It's a part of the job, but the part that comes with a heavy heart. And the person who gets the final word in this is Brian Mulroney, who recalls a thought that he had once while visiting George H.W. Bush. As I looked over the waters of Walker's Point on that golden September afternoon in Maine, I was reminded of the lines, simple and true, that speak to the real nature of George Bush and his love of his wonderful family and precious surroundings. There are wooden ships. There are sailing ships. There are ships that sail the sea. But the best ships are friendships. And may they always be. This has been a Target USA special report. The life of former President George H.W. Bush. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. In today's battle space, situations change rapidly. That's why Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. Thanks to the George Herbert Walker Bush Presidential Library for clips of audio and video. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.